primary type of hot extrusion is direct or forward extrusion. Indirect extrusion, the hot billet is loaded into a thick wall container and forced through an extrusion die secured in a holder. The force for extruding is applied by a ramp along with an intermediate reusable dummy block. Metal flow from the die is in the same direction as the forward motion of the ramp. Since the surface of the billet layer slides along the wall of the container, extrusion force depends on the friction between the billet length and the container and the material. The friction portion of the force can be reduced by using lubrication. Force increases rapidly as the billet is upset to fill the container, then increases further as breakthrough force before extrusion begins. Upon breakthrough, the force declines as billet length decreases until a minimum force is reached. As the billet thins, the force rapidly rises again to continue metal flow radially toward the die opening. Resistance to deformation or force requirements increase markedly as the thickness of the butt or unused billet portion decreases. Hot extrusion is most commonly performed on horizontal hydraulic presses. Hot extrusion presses are usually rated in force capacity, which translates to the amount of pressure applied to the billet. That pressure depends on billet material and temper its cross-section and complexity, length and temperature, extrusion speed and reduction or extrusion ratio. Spy the extrusion cracker. ratio equals the cross-sectional area of the container line. Hey everybody, Bakersville. Ba Bakersville. <laughs> Welcome Bakersville. to Bakersville, Bakersville. Podcast Yeah, Yes, dude. I'm so excited. Yeah. Me too. Yeah. I'm How's so everybody excited. been? Welcome. This is uh, the Spinecrackers podcast. I'm uh, I'm Gabe. I'm one of your hosts. Oh, right. Yes. I'm Matthew. I'm and, one of your hosts. Oh, right. Yes. I'm Paul, one of your hosts. Oh, right. Yes. Because, uh, <laughs> because Why did Paul, this was, become... Paul was mad because we forgot to do this last episode. Right. Yeah, but then you guys, really, you guys fuming. did make... You made fun of my turn of phrase just then for reasons that felt more like bullying than... Than that necessary. Was, we were making fun, fun of time. it. We were just imitating it. Yeah, we were imitating it. All right, that's you're gaslighting me. <laughs> <laughs> this is um yeah, this is Spinecrackers. It's the literary analysis and discussion podcast where we do a long form discussion about a book every week. And, right. And uh, talk about it. And, Make some crack some fucking jokers some jokes. <laughs> some joke. <laughs> it's a paris. It's a parasocial book club. I yeah, feel like yeah, that's yeah. a good way to describe parasocial. it, right? Yeah, no, that's good. Yeah, that's, that's kind of right. Yeah. And uh, today, the subject at hand is Nicholson Baker's, I think, first novel, The Mezzanine. Yes. The Mezzanine from 1986. Is that right? 88. Mm -hmm. 88. No, oh, no, 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 86. 86? Yeah. Oh, already fucking mm. up. This was your pick, too, you dum-dum. Yeah, that's true. I feel no. like I was hoping it was uh, uh, my uh, birth year. I It's it's almost my birth year. Well, it's Game almost both too. of ours. It's a year before I'm old because I'm 87. Oh, it says circa 1986, and then it says 1988. I'm so I wonder, I don't know why, you know, even in the... In the Not, you mean copyright? Yep. <laughs> what do you say? 
Stop the podcast. Take... Restart. <laughs> All right. Quick to for me. You guys, you guys carry on. No, I'm no, no, to... no, no. No. Stop. No. Stop. Dude, I fucking I fucked up. Dude. This is the Matt. This is the bullying Matt episode. <laughs> Struggle <laughs> session. I don't know how that happened. Um. Yeah. Okay. Eighty six. But. So. Um. This. Yeah. This was your pick, Matt. So do you want to? I guess jump into it and talk about because I had never heard of this. I don't know about you, Paul, but I'd never heard of this book, never heard of this author, and no. I still don't really know much about him. I did not do a lot of research for this episode. Me either. Yeah, but that's been, <laughs> me neither. But that's consistent. Uh, yeah, I, 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 it was just um, it was one of these books that was listed as like a. a I don't know, almost like dismissively I'd heard as like uh, uh, having just a kind of funny, cheeky conceit that it was exploring and that that was what it was notable for. Mm. Um, but um, One of the blurbs in the front calls it a, a gimmick novel in my edition. Really? Do you have this one? Yeah, I, th- I can't tell because you're background, <laughs> Paul, but I think so. <laughs> it's. One. I mean, it, it lumps it in with other gimmick not like it it's not meant as a dig i guess because they talk about ulysses and tristam shandy and stuff as being what gimmick novels basically <laughs> um damn is so that who knows i don't know what was going on with the new york times book review in 1986 but some snarky spicy spicy takes. yeah so the Gro- for those who don't know we're talking about the grove press edition which yes. i think is the most widely available one at the moment yep um yeah, I, I so I, I just chose it once again. Not a not a fun, you know, lore heavy story about why. Um, it was just one of these things where I'd seen it referenced by someone that I admired who I cannot remember at, right now. Um, Your mom. I do admire. She's a strong woman. Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> fuck you. But also, fuck you. Yeah. You're gonna get shout, shout, shout outs to session nine. Session nine. <laughs> Dude, session nine. <laughs> Great underrated wanted, movie. Let's just delve really into is. session nine. Let, real quick. Yeah, actually, this episode is actually about session nine. <laughs> uh, one of the scariest movies, one of the funniest scenes ever. Fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> Classic. It's so funny um, because it is the movie is really fucking scary. Yeah. yeah. But that scene and the fact that it's David Caruso, yeah. and I just can't like stop. Just thinking about fucking CSI Miami, like <laughs> yeah. liners when he's doing it. It's so fun. And the camera just zooming up Zooms on him as he goes, fuck yeah. you. Yeah, there was a lot of production value in that line. Yeah. Like there was like, yeah. they, like swoop in on wires like the camera. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I remember when we first watched it at your house game in high school, I, I rewound it like eighteen times. <laughs> So funny. It's definitely worth worth pausing and and watching over and over again. Well, now it's been reduced. It's like a GIF you can find on Jiffy or whatever. Yeah, you know, at this yeah. Point. And yeah. ninety, of course, ninety nine point nine percent of people don't even know what it's from. Right. They're just like, oh, yeah. an image. Uh, we're old. This is old people. <laughs> like old, like they don't even know a session. They don't nine. even know <laughs> session nine. David Caruso's early work or middle yeah, work, I guess. It's just a GIF to you kids. Uh, <laughs> You and your However, Nicholson Baker, right, would be someone who would have uh, a long and uh, somewhat insightful, uh, like, tangent to go off about that itself. Yes. You know? 
I, I haven't read anything other than this book by him. Um, is he, so like literally this is how little research I did. Is he American? Is he, yes. like what's his background? I don't know anything about the guy. He's American. This is his first book. Uh, I guess this is something that he's kind of known for, which is like drilling down on details. But yeah, I've not read, he's written a decent chunk of other stuff and uh, this is the start of it. So yeah. Operating on very little, like, holistic knowledge about this guy as, right. as a writer. I wonder if he's still active writing. He's like kind of... I did see a picture or two of him. He's kind of old. He is. He's 60... Well, he's 65, I think. Okay. Um, he's got a Twitter account you can follow. It's very wholesome. He's just posts photos of, like, flowers in his yard and stuff. And he's like, beautiful. You know, just stuff like that. That's great. Uh, kind of nice. Um, Mr. Baker, you're welcome on the show anytime. Oh, my God. That would be amazing. Yeah. Uh, but he was really, this, this book was written, uh, and, uh, when he was pretty fucking young. I think he was similar to the, like, well, um, so if he's in his 60s unnamed now, lead. Right. 19, I think he was born in 1957. So that would make it. And this was came Almost out exactly 30. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Uh, yeah. Um. Yeah, we so, never get a name for the narrator, do we? Or do yeah, we? Yeah, we do. Yeah, Howie, right? Howie. Yeah, Howie. Howie. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Sorry, but it sorry. is through others addressing of Right, them. right, right, right. But just to, just to finish up the whatever is the non-spiel about... I had just heard about it. I heard it was like a, a, one of these books that dilates time. That's the entire description I got. COVID. COVID? Well, I just mean like everyone... I feel like everyone talks about COVID dilating time now because we basically lost a year plus. Or did a year become longer or shorter? I don't know. <laughs> Me neither. Both. <laughs> both. Both, both. I feel like if more people were like Howie in this book, it would be less of a problem. Of course, the best thing to come out of COVID was this podcast. Yes. 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 You know, <clears throat> blood, blood from a stone. That's right. That's right. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that's, that's basically it, you know. I don't know. I, I forget where I'd heard about it, but... <laughs> A little dog wrangling. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I just heard it was, like, um, basically in the same dismissive tone as that blurb, like uh, a gimmick novel, but one worth checking out. Um, so what's so? what would you say, and this is sort of a loaded question, what is this novel about? It's very short, right? It's, like, 130 pages. Yeah. <coughs> uh, it's about a man's thoughts... Uh, in a super small chunk of time that's expanded through his subjective digressions internally as he uh, goes, has a lunch break, and then takes the escalator back up to the mez titular mezzanine, uh, which is uh, the offices where he works. And that's it. And it's just his digressions uh, throughout the day during that... What, what would be the total time frame of the book? An hour? Maybe an hour and a half, an hour, ten minutes, something like that. I'm sure there's like a precise breakdown, but yeah, I, yeah something like that. Because it's, it's... At one point, it was like page 80 or something, and it said like seven minutes had gone by since his shoelace broke. <laughs> I was yeah. Like, Jesus. <laughs> well, the actual, the actual like narrative of the novel is actually like basically when he comes back into the building and goes up the escalator. Right, yeah. but but he describes basically the surrounding hour, like before he leaves for his lunch break, what he does on his lunch break, and then coming back. 
Yes, I think that's actually important. Is like the time is. He, <clears throat> so the actual just, time is probably like three minutes, max. Like yeah. not even like a minute. Like yeah. he's he's literally, I think, um, taking the escalator up to his office again. Right. But he's recounting. Well, he has digressions back to his childhood, but he's um, recounting those digressions as branching off from the consideration of probably an hour and a half of time total. But the book takes place within the span of him getting on the escalator and getting to the top. Right. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, so probably like a minute. <laughs> yeah, so eat basically. it, Mrs. Dalloway. Eat it, Virginia Woolf. Yeah. Well, that, that, suck that was it. A... Suck it, Mrs. Dalloway. Suck it, Ulysses. <laughs> yeah, you thought you could dilate time. You had no idea how. Or wait, idea which one is it that takes place in one day? Ulysses or Finnegan's Wake? Ulysses. Ulysses, right? Yeah. But I was, you know, that was one of the points that I was thinking about was that, like, because we had read Miss Dalloway so recently, this is obviously a uh, an inheritor of 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 the very ideas about subjective time that the modernists and stuff were were messing with. I mean, Proust is referenced directly as well. Mm-hmm. I think it's very, it's like, um, it's interesting because the novel struck me as kind of like a bridge between that kind of like modernist, you know, Mrs. Dalloway, like Ulysses, whatever kind of <clears throat> preoccupation with subjectivity and kind of the phenomenology of memory and et cetera, et cetera. And the more kind of like postmodern <laughs> or, you know, whatever you want to call it, sort of like. David Foster Wallace style, like digressions upon digressions upon digressions. And there's, of course, this, this book very liberally uses footnotes as right. well, which is like one of the hallmarks of, you know, Wallace's kind of style. Uh, so it, it fits kind of in an interesting spot for me between those, uh, you know, styles of writing, I guess. Yeah. I hadn't read anything like this up until this point, so it was really like fresh for me. I like uh, it was me like either, a totally though. new experience. You, you too. Yeah, not. Really I mean, like I haven't this. read any like David Foster Wallace or anything, so I don't know if how but closely related there. He does footnotes. He doesn't do this. That whatever. Yeah, this yeah, is. yeah. It's yeah. not the same. It's it's just like I, I mean, just kind of sort of stylistically, right? Like in the actual writing, not necessarily mm-hmm. the the. The, the specific preoccupations. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I, I mean, that that's why I was saying, like, the mezzanine as a sort of metaphor, potentially for Nicholson Baker's own conception of his place in the literary tradition might be, like, trying to be evoked. Mm. I don't know, you know what I mean? Like, the mezzanine, which I had to look up, I'm going to confess, uh, just to get it straight, but, like, is a floor between two floors. I want to. I want to. I want to say it as like a, uh, as one of those like people from like across the bridge in New York in those Italian suburbs who, who say like mozzarella, the mezzanine, the mezzanine, the mezzanine, mezzanine. But yeah, uh, literally like a kind of like interstitch, like like a weird. Uh, middle ground between two more firmly defined like uh you know i don't know like boundaries right so well, i, I don't know if that was super intentional or not but it, well i mean i don't know how, yeah i don't know how intentional that sort of meta point is but it also functions in the novel i think of, of kind of signifying 
because one of the things that the narrator that Howie is kind of like uh, not obsessed with, but that he mentions many times is like these sort of um, formative or transformative moments in his life. Like when he sort of these big realizations that he brought out of childhood. And then he, there's a moment in the book where he talks about like, this was the instant that I sort of became an adult, right? When I sort of realized who I was as a person yeah. And, you know, he's kind of like in this, you know, he's not like a washout loser or anything. He's got some kind of office job and, and, but it's sort of about time and memory and like being in between moments in your life, I think as well. Yeah, partially, but there's such a robust, um, what like uh, uh faculty to notice and engage with like the super mundane details of everything that doesn't feel youthful or like somebody who i think in this case is like what 24 years old yeah early mid-20s yeah i mean th there is definitely almost like a spectrumy kind of uh like sensation <laughs> with somebody who is like really <coughs> drilling down on like every little fucking detail <laughs> yeah what i mean one i don't know about you paul but one of the things that i that jumped out to me about the narrator because we do get some um like dialogue and interaction between howie and other characters in the book uh and his internal states are so different from like how he projects himself to other people and like their interactions the interactions we have that he has with other people are completely normal right like just normal banter office banter or whatever but internally the description of what's going on in his head is so fucking insane <clears throat> that it's like yeah. there's this huge <laughs> juxtaposition well, I, I don't even really th consider it to be insane, really. I, I feel like, like yeah. the uh, Problema the scene, problematic word, the the scene <laughs> that um, where he's in the urinal, which yes, is like an amazing a chapter. Scene. Um, he just he goes through all these things, like from d going on like a four page rant about the uh, the automatic hair dryers or hand dryers that yeah. were new yeah. in nineteen <laughs> in the nineteen eighties. The Dyson um, Airblade. Yeah, he talks about how, like, if you can't, like, the paper towels were better because you could, you know, wash your face with it. And he goes into a rant about how if you want to wash your face or dry your face, you have to use toilet paper now because there's no, there's no hand towels. <laughs> it's just, like, it was so fun. I mean, I, I was cracking up, like, laughing out loud, like, throughout this entire book. But book, um, it's absolutely hilarious. The book, yeah, it's yeah, super funny. It's one of the funniest books I've ever read. I'll just say that. <laughs> Me too. But uh, it, going back to what I was trying to say, like the inner monologue he had in that chapter about like interacting with his like superiors while they're going to the bathroom and he can't pee, and then he has this story about in his head about how he can pee when he's nervous in the bathroom. Like all of it to me, or most of the book seemed like logical in a way like thoughts that i have but i can't i never actually like think of them enough to actually clearly like write them out or be able to write them out you know what i mean yeah it, it seemed like he could take his like he took his subconscious thoughts and like clearly spread them out um so they can appear to be like absolutely crazy 
but you end up, or I ended up realizing that I have weird thoughts like this too. Um, which was, I don't know. I thought it was really cool. I mean, I think that that's kind of probably part of the point maybe for Baker is that, and I had that same experience where I, there's, there were so many moments in this book that, and we can probably talk about some of them later, but that just resonated deeply with me where I was like, I fucking feel that. Like, it's like hash, (laughs) it was very hashtag relatable in in a lot of, in a lot of moments. The hand, the hand dryer one was actually one of them for me. Because I get very angry at the Airblade dryers, and I think they suck. And I and I frankly yeah. <laughs> hate I frankly hate all air hand dryers in bathrooms. Like if I go into a bathroom and I only see the hand dryers in there, I get angry. Like like I, I give me paper towels. Yeah, me too. Um, Except but, for the cool like weapons in like certain uh, role playing games where you have a air blade that you uh, use. Yeah, to yeah, yeah, yeah. Avatar, <laughs> Avatar, uh, and Skyrim shouts, notwithstanding. Yes, but um, and I do like I do you. like the ones that have like a blue light in them. They have like f- like eight air air holes. You know what I'm talking about? Up and down. <laughs> eight air holes. What is yeah, this? Yeah, there's like eight of them. What and luxury? There's a blue light. Damn, where are you going? Some movie theater I went to couple of them no fuck that i want paper well, they don't towels. work they don't work that well yeah that's the other thing you gotta fucking sit in them for like four like five minutes for him to actually dry your fucking hands and that's his yeah. point that's one of his points right that's one of his ranting points yeah, yeah you, how he's like no one wants to 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 leave their hands under there so they end up flicking the water everywhere yep right which i do to... and then i wipe it on my clothes yeah he's like the the, the hygienic aspects are questionable because of you know the time-saving measures are are have been harmed through the air blade and other things. And also <laughs> therefore it kind of, uh, unexpectedly. And this is kind of his points with a lot of, uh, you know, banal innovations and in, like consumer product technology. It, uh, it, it creates these like ripple effects that, uh, create nostalgically charged rituals of fond memories or right. bullshit where you're wiping your kind of semi wet hands on your, on your pants. And it's like even less hygienic than just having, paper towels and i feel like that's one of the other things about the novel <laughs> <laughs> oh, this book. it's so good it's so funny i mean I, I think that's one of the other things about it too is that like it's a it's also a commentary on sort of like but again uh, you know uh, uh, okay, i guess i'll finish my point before i say the but again but um you know it's this commentary on like social change and like you said matt like nostalgia for like earlier eras and all, you know, it's very sort of like about excavating memory and, and sort of connections that you have between people and time periods and objects and spaces and sort of tactile sensory experience. It's very phenomenological in that sense. You know what I mean? He has a really good eye for how things see like like appear visually and how things sound and feel yes um and and the way that those things get interlaced with and connected with memory and individuals and and periods of your life it's perfect because it's like an evocation of like materials like i felt the the flimsy paper or the plastic how easily plastic rips after uh, you know in a, like a sort of shrink-wrapped vinyl record that you buy after the first breach or the glass doorknobs that he's describing like everything like had a a sense memory 
embedded even within myself that was uh, was part of almost the weirdly grounding effect of the book. Because I don't know about you guys, but like um, one thing that I, I, I love a lot, sort of abstractly, but for reasons that uh, ultimately relate to um, material reality in the, in, the, in the literal sense of like touching different types of material is like uh, uh, lists of how, okay, like Ikea furniture is a good example. Like when they tell you that like, you know, you need to screw in this and, and flange blah, 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 like needs to be flushed with wood, you know, <laughs> spinnaker, blah, blah, blah. And like reading that stuff just dryly without even the like pretense of some sort of literary um, context to be in, like in this book is satisfying. Like is, um, mm. I love reading like uh, just descriptions of assembly and uh, how material goods are produced and stuff like this. And I get a sense that like Baker also does like almost sensually. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's very sensual. Yeah, that's uh, interesting, Matt, because I normally don't, like, I I can't learn or, like, I can't learn like that. I can't, uh, even when in school, when someone something was, like, trying to be explained to me, like, the assembly of something, I'm such a visual learner that I, like, hate that kind of writing, actually. Like, I'm, I'm happy that the IKEA stuff ends up having, like, picture diagrams, because I'm like, oh, I understand that. Oh, <laughs> but to, be, this to book, clarify, I'm not oh, uh, capable to learn... I just like it. Oh, yeah, it doesn't. Right, it right. doesn't help me assemble. I just like yeah. it. Yeah, but I mean, I, I will well, say, Baker is so detailed, and um, he just puts every single possibly possible angle around whatever he's trying to say, that it be, it became so easy for me to visualize what he was talking about, which right. was like a first for me. Well, I think Paul, you probably have a unique perspective a little bit on what Matt was just saying, because like you are, you know, <clears throat> bit like a practicing, uh, you know, I don't know what you call yourself, but like you, you build things and you put things together and like, so I thought it was, I, I think you may have a different kind of perspective on that in terms of like, you know, you, you do it and feel the doing of it versus the description of the doing of it which kind of what Matt was describing. And I feel like Baker kind of does both in a way. Yeah. I, I feel, it felt like or describes both. Well, at least I feel like if Baker was describing how to, like if he wrote a book about putting like a, a house together from the foundation up, I would read the entire thing and it would be <laughs> so enjoyable. <laughs> right. Right. Cause he could, he could do it so well. But the, the thing about it is it's not just his writing style. Isn't just like textbook, um, one step follows the other. It's not like that. It's just like, there's a lot of instances of just all. like no. where he shows how almost poetic he can be also. And he also does that a lot in the footnotes, which was interesting to me. Some of the best content is in the footnotes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, because ultimately he, it's a literary enterprise that he's undertaking. And one of the, one of the small... Um, I watched one interview with him... Uh, from 2013 and uh he said that he was um interested in being an inventor mm -hmm. as uh, a child right i think i might have actually seen the beginning of yeah. that interview you know uh him and his dad uh, i guess his dad was kind of like you know trying to trying to uh inspire his son to to maybe take an interest in exactly what he was uh, that like uh 
but also, it, you know, he's of an age where I think uh, that was more of a tangible possibility or something, or like felt more achievable. Basically, yeah, he was. Um, there was no Shark Tank. <laughs> no, there was <laughs> weird media element to it or whatever. There was a, because who's he? T- he's talking about at some point towards the end. He's like, just praising this um, Polish inventor for tackling some of the deeper uh, issues of shoelace design. Yes, yes. There's a <laughs> long. There, the shoelaces occupy a, a ton of text in this book. From well, I would say. I think at the end there's a very long footnote about shoelace design. Yeah, I mean the, the shoelace is basically the the main or the one plot point, right? The shoelace <laughs> breaking, right? And Starts then everything, he real, and then he realized that his first his other shoelace broke the day before. So, uh, you know, woven throughout the novel is this plot to get to the bottom of how the hell they broke at such a similar time. <laughs> basically, <Yes>. basically, <laughs> the shoelace is the Sauron <laughs> of this book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but then there was some uh, like I, I love it because this is like I love he there is it's 135 pages and there's such a like for all the digressions and sort of you know Russian doll footnote structures that are going on there's like a payoff basically at the end where like at the fucking top of the book he's like shoelace it broke why right <laughs> and at the end he's like uh, some people would have you believe that, like, the uh, externalities involved in uh, shoelace abrasion and all the factors that you would be possibly have to calculate in order to accurately describe why my shoelaces broke at these alternating times but still super close uh, is too hard to fathom for the human brain. And then he's like, <laughs> and then he's despairing, right? Because there's no, the, the world is too chaotic. It's too hard to wrangle with. And then there's this one Polish scientist who's like, no, no. I got you. My got you. My life's work is actually involved in in solving just this because I had the same experience. And that's like the human connection he has to that. Right, right. I don't know. It's just like he takes you on a journey and it's literally with like a shoelace breaking. Well, I think that was was possibly a little bit of his, his, uh, his point too is like, can I write an interesting novel about the most boring thing I can possibly think of, which is my shoelace breaking? Okay, I, I, I actually was thinking about this because of the footnotes, and you said David Foster Wallace, right? Um, yeah. You know, uh, I think they use the footnotes for a, a, a similar conceptual reason of just, like, the, the phenomenological reality of, of human thought being one that digresses. Um, and so, you know, like, in, in, in Infinite Jest, I believed he wanted those to be footnotes, and they ended up being endnotes for, like, consumer reasons, but, you know... Um, but that was the last book that David Foster Wallace was trying to read or write, um, you know, The Pale King. Which, which by the way, novel... I'm sorry, not to just, but yeah. ed, fuck, fuck endnotes. Fucking footnotes are superior to endnotes in literally every possible way. And I just, I, I just need to put that out there. Oh, yeah. I firmly agree with you. Um, and uh, his last novel, the one he couldn't finish, you know, before offing himself, was about boredom. Uh, was literally he was trying to tackle the like insane task of like writing a boring book that was interesting, <laughs> uh, and I feel like he must have read Baker, right? If he didn't, who did it successfully? If he didn't, yeah. he should have, and maybe it would have stopped him from killing himself. F in the chat, because the chat. <laughs> because this 
like in terms of Wallace's goal, right? Like a boring, interesting book. This is it. Like it was already written when he like undertook that that task. I'm just so curious if he did. I don't know if people know. Hey, listen. Uh, uh, what's the the Great Concavity? Is that the podcast? Great Concavity. Shoutouts. Uh, the DF. One of the there's a I think yeah DFW podcast. Um, if y'all let's, know, let's do some. Let's do a. We'll do a little mini sode on it. If if Joe he Rogan Baker. podcast. <laughs> yeah. If Joe Rogan, if you know if David Foster Wallace read Nicholson Baker, let or, us know. Or fuck it, why not David Foster Wallace? If you're out there, yes. Yeah, if yeah, someone you know, needs to his own death, if a medium can channel you, David, or if it wasn't real, yeah. Yeah, dude. David Foster <laughs> yeah. Wallace went fucking Spirit. Tupac, dude. He's still alive. That would be so he insane is. to see some sort of hologram. David Foster Wallace, and he's right and here. David Foster Wallace and Tupac <laughs> are both. Living on an island somewhere together. We just have, we just have the on cinema like Tom Cruise CGI like kid coming <laughs> or the, in, or the, or, the, or the old guy that thinks that says he's James Dean. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, oh god. But yeah, I mean, I think like the connections are too are 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 so clear. I think that it's a it's a question worth pursuing. Like. Did Wallace read Baker? And, you know, if not, he should have. Or Baker's preoccupations at 30 were those of Wallace actually kind of probably close to the same time. Right. Um, or at least in age. But anyway, yeah, that was my only point. Just because the, the footnotes thing obviously, like, immediately draws the comparison. And I just wonder if also, you know that was a bit copped if because like a lot of the humor of this book plays to me as someone who's read all the wallace stuff and is toxic wallace fan <laughs> uh it, it plays as a lot of the humor that wallace himself tries to like to do in his novels which is like the hilarious banal particularities um teased out to like extreme degrees right but but the but the other thing like uh, about what I've read of Wallace and I'm, I'm not, I'm not a Wallace scholar again, concavity, anyone Wallace people, if you want to come on and talk about Wallace, let's do it. Um, but like from what I've read of Wallace, he, there's a, um, not a bitterness. I mean, uh, but, but like there's a, there's a, there's condescension and there's some level of like anger in Wallace's writing in a way. Yeah. And there's none of that here. Like Baker is the most super wholesome and, and, and like is able to find not even the absurdity, the humor. Yes. But not, not even the absurdity or the, or the, you know, bitterness or anger in these like menial details, but the, the heart and like the human connection and the, and the, the beauty, you know what I mean? Which kind of what you, what you were saying earlier, I think Paul, yeah, well, I, I found it to be like, yeah, like what you're saying. Um, and you said this in text like two days ago. You said that this was kind of like uh, a wholesome American psycho. Yeah. Because yeah. it is someone really who's think, like. <laughs> I, I really think yeah. that, that, that was really like the first thought that occurred to me like after I finished the book. After That's I finished so it, I still thought that that was very accurate because it's like a lot of hyper, you know, hyper thoughts about social interactions or whatever. And specifically, right, like, no... and the thing that triggered me to think that originally was that there's a lot of stuff specifically about, like, um, 
office interactions and like American professional life and like how you talk to like, what is the proper way to end a conversation? Like there's a great scene at the beginning, early on in the book where he's, he's talking to the secretary of his office as he's about to leave for lunch. And she has to take a phone call in the middle of their conversation. And there's a great, like, like, you know, digression about what is the proper way to like end the conversation like how much do you have to talk before you like he's like we'd already talked too much for me to be able to just walk away so I had to wait but if then she's on the call for a certain amount of time then I'm allowed to just kind of wave and leave and like just like there's a whole like going down this rabbit hole about how to properly end certain office conversations yeah brilliant the uh I mean it versus oops yeah, this footnote was oh my also God. Was really good. I've I so called out like like oops oops just what, too... and white men just saying oop is whenever they oop 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 you know just yeah <laughs> it like, me it me yes <laughs> fuck uh, yeah I just saw that I was like how God damn it eighty six all right sorry Paul I interrupted you earlier what were you saying yeah yeah I forget what I was saying but I I wrote down Seinfeld uh, in my notes yes. because I was thinking like. You know, there's the thing about Seinfeld is the show about nothing. But I was like, this is this is so much more about absolutely nothing. Yeah. And funnier, even though I think Seinfeld's funny. But uh, it's I also had it's funny. Wow. I can't really watch it anymore because of Kramer or Michael, the guy who played. Uh, Kramer. Yeah, yeah. He's this awful human being. Um, but I was also thinking, have you guys seen Peep Show? Yeah, the I've seen British... a few episodes. Yeah, no, I don't know. I had a little bit of peep show kind of English British humor vibes from this book as well. Um, maybe it's yeah, just like the cheeky nature of it, but also, you know, peep shows is like entirely inner monologue of the main character, Mark, that goes through all these kind of social situations of his well, own, and, you know, and, and curb, curb, your, curb your enthusiasm, right? Like there's mm. just that kind of like obsession with uh, minor detail in your life. Mm. Um, metastasizing into an all-consuming issue that you can't move forward without addressing and somehow resolving even though that might be impossible <laughs> like right. but i think the i don't know one you know brilliant aspect of it though it, nothing huge ever happens you know it always is so nothing. isolated nothing yeah nothing happens it's so isolated to like these not even plot points that um, yeah, he just was able to like get down to like the the uh, string of the universe of this idea, you know. Sorry, I'm looking at the. Uh... <coughs> okay, so one of the things I, I unfortunately didn't start underlining stuff until the latter half, so my uh, observations are stacked towards the end. Um. That's fine because I most of my underlining and stuff is at the beginning, actually. Oh, perfect. Okay. Um, so, one of the other because we've been doing comparisons and like one of the other things that I had written down before was like, um, I wrote not a Proust fan question <laughs> mark uh, because he says uh, although I don't trust this, and this is a smell, memory tie, so that's going to immediately invite Proust into your conversation. So although I don't trust this olfactory memory trick anymore because it seems to be a hardware bug in the neural workings of the sense of smell, a low-level sort of tie-in, 
underneath subtler strata of language and experience, between smell, vision, and self-love, which has been mistakenly exalted by some writers as something realer and purer and more sacredly significant than intellective memory, like the bubbles of swamp methane that odd provincials once took for UFOs. <laughs> yeah, that's so good. He is, he is, uh, maybe he's a little preoccupied with, like, um, mind as such or something, like uh, some sort of, like, biological. This is where the spectrum uh, Evo psych kind of thing comes into play a mm. little bit for me. But he was just like, yeah. I, I feel like that was addressed to Proust. Like, to yeah. the people who would be like, this is Proust's uh, exercise, just short. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, there's there was a, there were a number of passages that I thought kind of like signaled that right because it's it's he's obviously concerned with some of the similar uh, kind of themes of Proust like nostalgia and memory and and sort of like you know how you, these associations or these events or these experiences that you've had in the past just kind of like control you in a way or pop back in and like make your, your current life what it is. Um, there, and there was a passage on, it's on 47. It's the end of, um, it's the very end of chapter six. And I, I, I thought that this paragraph in a way is sort of like the, the question of the book or the thesis of the book. Um, so I'm just gonna read it. He, he's talking about milk, and he's talking about, like, the, the design. Okay, I wanted the, to say that milk is no longer canceled after this book. <laughs> he right, that's right. Milk. We canceled milk last episode. It is no longer canceled because <laughs> of this book. You're right. You're right. I take it back. Milk, milk is, is uncanceled. Milk is uncanceled. <laughs> it's back on the menu. Although his, his, <laughs> his, back on the menu. his <laughs> love interest uh, can't drink any. Oh, yeah, L. 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 Which, uh, do we, is that his wife or do, is it just a girlfriend or just a love interest? I don't know if we can get any definite. We don't. Yeah. I think, yeah. but I think, I think it's just a, a girlfriend. Yeah. So anyway, but she has, and it's, there's, there's funny moments of just random kind of like gross out humor where he talks about her like bloody diarrhea, drinking milk. <laughs> it's yeah. like, oh God, like that was gross. But anyway. So this is after talking about the design of um, milk cartons where he, you know, somehow winds up talking about Tacitus and like Greek history. And, like, yeah. It's like so funny. <laughs> and then he comes back to, to talking about milk. And one of the other themes of the book, <laughs> I know, I know, it's like sounds ridiculous, right? Uh. Um, but one of the other kind of, Things that he does in the book, the narrator is kind of like try to take stock of like how often specific memories occur to him. At the very end of the book, there's like literally a oh, list of like the number of times it. he thinks we about so all funny. of these different topics. It's so funny. But um, so anyway, so on, 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 on 47, he says, I have then only one unit of adult thought about milk to weigh against dozens of childhood units. And this is true. <laughs> and this is true. Of many, perhaps most subjects that are important to me, will the time ever come when I am not so completely dependent on thoughts I first had in childhood to furnish the feedstock for my comparisons and analogies and sense of the parallel rhythms of micro history? 
Will I finish a point where, will I reach a point where there will be a good chance, I mean more than a 50-50 chance, that any random idea t popping back into the foreground of my consciousness will be an idea that first came to me when I was an adult rather than one that I had repeatedly as a child? Will the universe of all possible things I could be reminded of ever be mo mostly an adult universe? I hope so, indeed. If I could locate the precise moment of my past when I conclusively became an adult, a few simple calculations would determine many... Uh, would determine how many years it will be before I reach this new stage of life, the end of the rule of nostalgia, the beginning of my true majority. And luckily, I can remember the very day that my life as an adult began. <laughs> and, I, and I think that, like, uh, what the, the word that jumps out to me from that paragraph is microhistory. Yeah. And I feel like that's kind of, like, what this book is. Like, he's doing a microhistory of his life and specifically this moment in his life, this hour where he leaves and comes back and is riding the escalator. And I just feel like that is, you know, it, I don't know. I don't feel like it, I've never read anything like it really. Because, well, I because think this, oh, go ahead. I'm oh, sorry. Just my one, just a short point is just that this book also, we said like the sort of layers of time around the different discussions, but also this book itself is written multiple years outside of, of the memory yes that he's discussing as well that's all wait what do you mean he is like um working a different job and is like several years or more outside of the memory he's recalling and trying to like transcribe in this book oh okay yeah yeah i was just gonna say that i think gabe to your point i think this book really gets into like the zeitgeist of the 1985-86 in a really awesome way. Like, I actually, I don't know why, but I thought this book was written in 2004 because I, I don't, I think I looked at the beginning and I, it might have been published again in 2004. But after, like, halfway through, I was like, this book takes place in, like, 1987. Um, just by, like, all the tactile things and all the items and the CVS bag that had to be stapled before it had, like, loops on it. I could it like dated itself so well, um, and it really just yeah. I, I think it can be like almost like a historic relic for people from like a hundred years from now. They can read this and be like, "This is the hour and a day of some weirdo," but still, it's like very <laughs> detailed and accurate. And you can get a, a weird sense of history. Yes, from I it. I think it was in, it was also intentionally dated. I think even in the the like mid to late eighties, like it was also trying to evoke nostalgia, obviously. And therefore like, um, old, like he, he, when he's talking about milk, he's talking about the milk delivery and the, like, <laughs> I just think the word milk is funny now. Milk. And the peculiar like experience of like the doorstep delivery of like glass bottles of milk. And then, uh, and then the, the, the innovation of the, like, uh, spigot tab that you could push into existence yeah. through like adhesive tension technology and then how like uh like the labels of the brands of milk this this maybe the most 80s thing is like um the fixation of like a kind of like uh, cons the consumer goods that he that he's experienced over his whole life yes right it's, like it's he's it's very brand heavy, the book. Like, yes. there's a lot of brand names. And also Papa a lot Gino's. of sort of like. Yeah, yeah Papa, Papa Gino's, Gino's, dude. Papa Gino's pops up all the time. And, and <laughs> very. Um, 
Yeah, it's 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 a micro history of this person's like experience in their life, but it's tied to the larger history of like you said, Matt, American consumer goods and the way that sort of we engage with you know, everything from milk to you know, hand dryers to staplers. There's like a long thing about staplers early on and it, and it's all very like um properly historical in the sense that he talks about like how stapler design like evolved alongside certain like architectural innovations and like the way that they're they're just the colors and everything it's like it's very academic in a way i would say like he really like brings out a lot of these like super obscure details about these products that he's talking about but then always sort of loops them back into this very deeply personal kind of connection that he has with them. Yes. Yeah. One of my favorite examples of that is when in one of the footnotes, he's talking about um, the aluminum foil that goes over sandwiches and how it's, it's thinner. um, So that like the sandwich gets wrapped easier. And then he ends up what, like finding the guy who invented it. And he had plans to like, congratulate him (laughs) and then he ends up calling or does he call i think he ends up calling and then like the phone rang and he panicked and thought like oh he was like what if he's dead and the and his wife picks up and then i have to like talk to her about how she's a widow now so he hangs up yeah that cracked me up he's like i couldn't i couldn't bear the thought of like the you know the uh whatever like the the yeah the the benighted voice of a widow on the other line yeah <laughs> and i was like damn you know and, and but that's a perfect example of him tying in like you know something so again i i think the point is like intentionally silly like the the gauge the thickness of aluminum foil and yeah. then uh he wants to talk to a guy about like oh like you know, I, I love your innovations technically with like the, the thickness and like, d- were you most proud about like the thickness of the aluminum foil? Or were you, really, <laughs> were you, or were you more proud about the, uh, the device you invented to help cut it off at certain points to create like m- sheet measurements to be rolled <laughs> and all this kind of thing. And then it ends in this incredibly human observation that like, maybe he's dead and I'm going to talk to like, uh, you know, his sad widow wife. Yeah, there's always like a an element of real humanity to almost all of these little moments. And I think that that's a good example of that. Like it brings you back to not to reality, but to just the humanity of Baker. But you're right, there is like there's a there's a overbearing comedy silliness to the whole thing. But I, I don't think it takes away how I think Baker is slightly critical of the world he is describing. I mean, it's never outwardly cynical, like what you guys are talking about with Wallace, but it's there. Uh, I think at least I got the sense of it, even though it's, it's done in such a wholesome way. Or he's I feel just, like you know, it was there. It's hard to uh, say for me. Yeah. I think he's, he's in awe of the ways in which, um, the ways in which super, banal and minor 
change shifts in specifically i would say consumer goods uh reverberate out and change the like very human rituals that we conduct without thinking about um you know on a day-to-day basis which then end up becoming profound because we do them like all the time or like we we and and that's why he all ultimately also like i think segues into this like thing about like how often do i think about the things that I also experience, usually via the like qualities of the things I consume. So like my yeah. shoelaces or fucking milk or like uh, earplugs or whatever. Like he's, uh, you know, he's like, these are things that have uh, no um, no real bearing. What you know, like like on me as a human being, but they really yeah. do. They really do. Yeah, I mean, they occupy our thoughts, right? It's like, At one point, and they shape our, our experiences and our sort of identities, right? Yeah. At one point, he's talking about water boiling. On page 102 of the Grove <laughs> Press edition, he's at this point clowning on everybody, and he's describing water <laughs> boiling, the example of a boring thing. Right. You know what I mean? Like right, the yeah. example of an interminable, boring thing. Yep, and he and he still manages to kind of tie it in. Like, I don't want to read the full thing. It's a footnote. Um, but um, what does he get into with it? <laughs> he calls some of the bubbles later still and as glutinous toad-like globes of hard boiling took over. <laughs> And then he describes boiling water as like the cure for uh, when he has a cold, and his parents used to like um, bring him over to the stovetop to inhale steam to clear out his like congested lungs and nose. Right. And like, again, it's it's a beautiful it, that that's like such a microcosm of like the exercise of the book continually is like, you take something like uh, the surface imperfections in a um, in a uh, pot allowing for the accretion of um, air to create a bubble and escape in the form of steam. Super scientific, heartless almost. And then you have a childhood memory of him being held by his father over a steaming pot in order to, like, aid, soothe his cold. Um, And, like, you know, I don't know. Yeah, once again, I think he's continually describing, like, Right, like that that le- that path leading you down that path. Yeah, and it's and again, it's you know, it's it's the the mundanity. Is that a word? Mundaneness, mundanity. I have no idea. Yes, mundanity. I think so. Yeah. Um, yeah. Of kind of you know those formative experiences, right? Which from the outside are boring and to quote uh, Clifford Lee Sargent, bloodless. No, and, and 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 just kind of you know nothing, and they become so imbued with meaning and weighty, you know. Well, yeah, he he's able to bring out the profundity of a mundane experience, right? I would say, right? Because like Matt, like what Matt was just saying, like he can talk about something so dry and so dull, and then either in a footnote or not in a footnote, he can go into some 
nostalgic memory that you end up realizing influences his thoughts at the current moment. And I think one of the reasons the book is so relatable and kind of like just struck a chord with me, A, there were some very specific things that I was like, yes, like I fucking yeah. feel that exact same way. Like but also like the air dryers or, you know, um, there's a footnote that I, I might read later about um, people flicking cigarette butts out their windows in cars. Oh, that was great. So yeah. good. So maybe I'll read that um, in, a, in a bit. But it, so there's there's like these very specific detailed descriptions of things that many of us have experienced. And some of them will resonate with almost anyone, I think, that reads this book. But just in general, it makes you think about like those memories that you have and those moments in your own life that become formative, that become, you know, uh, part of who you are. And yeah. it's, it's something small. It's something, you know, from again, from the outside, something that is meaningless or, or stupid or boring or whatever, but that becomes sort of ingrained in the fabric of your own identity. And I think that, that that's what this book does better than anything is to get you to sort of examine those, like, what are these experiences for me, right? This guy's experience of his shoelace or the boiling water or whatever, any of the dozens of experiences that he describes in the book, what are mine? Uh, you know what I mean? What are the things that stick out to me in that same way and have shaped me? Yeah, and also what things do you maybe have almost OCD, like, strange thoughts about? Like, there's one, I didn't underline it, but there's one passage where he's talking about how he can't, he, he's trying to separate his adulthood from his um, childhood by, seven. like, he has, like, a 17-year idea. So when he's right. 17 years older... He'll have enough of the memories he had when he was 17 and younger so that then he will be like absolutely full of new adult memories so he can discount the like the pure nostalgic ones from when he was a child. Right. And that was one of those times. And there was many of them where I was trying to think of like weird thoughts I have about or like like that where I make up like weird numbers or something to talk about some weird subconscious idea that's going through my head that if I were to actually like say it out loud, I'd be like, I'm thinking crazy thoughts right now. <laughs> yeah. Do we, do we all have um, an example of some kind of um, uh, unbidden thoughts that uh, are not, are well, banal, you know, I would say are banal, but like still you're like, this is strange, but you have them commonly. I mean, it, it, it's not really so much an example of that. For me, but the thing, you know, what I was saying to Paul was like these like very vivid sense memories that you have that you like that, that carry forward into your life. And for, for me, one of them is so like, OK, nowadays I and you guys know this, you've been to my house and slept over and we've had fun adult sleepovers, not adult like mm -hmm. sex, like just <laughs> we're, we're adults. <laughs> Um, adult swingers sleepovers. Fun, fun swinger adult sleepovers. <laughs> um, but I, when I sleep, I like to have background noise. I play YouTube videos. Sometimes I have the TV on. I love like those like ASMR like sleeping like 
oh city rain chatter yes. videos. I fucking mm-hmm. love that shit. And yeah, I've been thinking recently about like why? Like why does this like click with me so much? And I remember I've had vivid memories of you know, we used to drive when I was a kid back and forth between New York City and and where I'm from. And uh late at night sometimes and my dad would always have on like NPR or talk radio or whatever. And I'd be falling asleep in the back seat and just the sounds of like the radio being like loud enough for him to hear, but not loud enough to keep me awake and the car and him shifting in the seat. And that was like the most soothing, like best fucking sleep of my life, you know? And those memories are, are, yeah, I know I'm like getting tired. tired. (laughs) Jinx. (laughs) Um, but yeah, so like that, that's the sort of thing that this book evokes for me is those like vivid sense memories that you have from your youth or from whatever that just stick with you and like kind of influence where you are now. So that's my example. Yeah, I don't really, I I did not think of one when I was, that's a good example, but yeah, I can't think of one, but you were talking about the cigarette butt being flicked out and how he goes into length about that. And I almost feel like that's one for me I can't put pin, uh, totally pinpoint. But like, you know, being on car trips and seeing that as a kid and, and it almost happening in slow motion. Um, but he was able to just like elaborate on whatever menial thought that I ever had about that experience and like break it down and really just flesh it out. Um, so it evoked a lot of strange nostalgic memories I didn't even know I had in me reading that passage. I I might just read that whole footnote because I think it's one of the best examples in the book of him. It's on 58 where he turns this mundane thing and the writing is beautiful and it's just so like evocative. So this is where what you were talking about, Paul, when he comes, he's doing that like 17 year, like, 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 (laughs) right. Um, and so he, the the reference in the beginning of the footnote is to that where he's like, I, I, it's a 17 year kind of break, right? Where nostalgia starts to fade and blah, blah, blah. So this is the footnote. I reached the conclusion I was, as I was driving home fast in the dark on the highway that only a few days earlier had borne the garbage truck that had reminded me of the railroad spike and the white background trick, referencing a bunch of other, you know, descriptions um, and scenes from earlier in the book. Of mundane objects placed on a uh, clean white surface, rendering them um, somehow more unique than in their like natural setting. Exactly. Which, incidentally, I kind of think is what he's doing in this book, right? He's yes, placing yes, yes. he's placing all of these objects on a white background of nothing, of a guy riding up the escalator, and right. bringing and out their yeah yeah well right and also literally yeah true. I had been thinking, <coughs> pardon me. I'd been thinking that only after I had become a commuter had I noticed the way cigarette butts flicked out narrowly open windows by invisible commuters ahead of me, landed on the cold, invisible road, and cast out a small firework of tobacco sparks, and how the sight had the same effect on me as the last shot of a scene in Risky Business. (laughs) Again, like, it's this free associative, like, you know, referential thing. A late-night Chicago subway train sends off a flare of sparks in the darkness, bringing to a close with a crisp hi-hat symbol, the lulling electronic hymns of the soundtrack, 
except that these cigarette sparks were the farewell explosions of such intimate items, still warm from people's lips and lungs, appearing just beyond your headlights and then washed out by them as you passed the still wildly spinning and tumbling butt that was traveling at 40 miles an hour to your 65. This had reminded me of how I used to open the window on car trips when I was, when I was little and release an apple or pear core into the bolster of air and noise and watch it shrink away into the perspective of the road behind the car, still bouncing and spinning fast, suddenly changed from something I held in my hand to something not mine that would come to rest on a stretch of highway which had no particular distinguishing feature, a place between human places as litter. And I, w and I was wondering whether the people who tossed their cigarette butts out into the darkness did it simply because they preferred this to stubbing the cigarette out in their ashtray, and because they enjoyed the burst of cold, fresh air from the quarter-open windows as they flicked it away, or whether they knew what moments of sublimity they were creating for the non-smokers behind them, and did it for us. Had they noticed the same fireworks trailing other smokers' cars? Did they, with the attic sentimentality and self-regard, associate this high-speed cremation and ash-scattering with the longer curve of their own life? hurled into the darkness in a blaze of glory, etc. I was turning these various thoughts, some of them new ones and some repeaters, around in my head when the conclusion arrived. Uh, like, I, yeah. it's so just, it's beautiful. It's beautiful writing and it's so descriptive of the phenomenology of these experiences. But even that, even that passage made me laugh. Like, I read that line, hurled into the darkness in a blaze of glory, like, hurled into the darkness in a blaze of glory you know there's like little <laughs> yeah snippets of humor how i was reading it because it all it all came out like so cheeky i do think he is in some sense seriously trying to like kindle the fire of uh of 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 of, of the similar behavior in in the reader a bit you know like through if anyone can make it through the book you know, I, I will admit to like at least like twenty pages in being like, I don't know if I want to go through a gimmick like this. Mm. I was afraid of being bored, which I think is like right. a pretty natural. I don't know. Hopefully, you know, kind of reaction to what I started to like sense this book was, but then it, it completely won me over. Um, by the end of it. But yeah, for like at least 20 pages, I was like, oh no, like tedious explication of banalities. <laughs> right. I was like, I'm going to be fucking bored out of my skull. And I chose because, well, because, because since this book, it's been done. It's been done to death. Like it is boring and stupid now in some ways, you know, like if so, like, like I think you're right, Matt. Like if someone just said like, oh, here's a book about tedious, like you said, like detailed explanations of banalities. I have a similar kind of, yeah, no, I'm good. Yeah. Well, I mean, Matt, when you first described this book to me last week in person, I was, I like, I was like, I hate you. You're making me you what? <laughs> I was like, I hate. Well, I am trying to troll sounds. you and that's true. I, and I was like, I hate footnotes. I don't usually even read footnotes. We so do I love had, trolling yeah. Paul with books we know he's not, not going to like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's true. But I had like a, a complete 180. I love this book. I mean, I, I was sold on page nine when at the very end of the chapter it said he just wrote, uh, in the stapled CVS bag was a pair of new shoelaces. <laughs> <laughs> I like laughed out loud. And I was like, I love this book. It's hilarious. Like it, I don't, at that point in the, in the book, I thought it might be like a weird noir novel because <laughs> it, it yeah. ended so funny in that chapter. It didn't end up 
being that, but still, he had those similar, like, like Gabe in one passage you read at the end of a chapter, he had that sim- similar, like, grandiosity to the final uh, sentence that just, it happened a bunch. It was so freaking funny. Yeah. Yeah, he's just, he's raising a lot of things that I think get taken for granted as uh, worthy literary subjects to be considered, you know? And, like, um, that's something that, yeah, you could say happens a lot or at least is an idea that, like, is engaged with a lot. But I would also say not successfully a lot of the time. I think it's still a, a practice that happens as, like, a, a point of humor or and, you know, that is supposed to then segue into sublimity um but a lot of the time it is uh it is uh transparent that that's the case and it's uh done poorly and it's cringe and uh like fucking annoying and it's it's a gimmick in a bad way right like it's a it's a like there's gimmicks that are you know covers for lack of depth and then there are gimmicks that entice you and kind of hook you into depth, and that's what this book is. Yeah, well, there's a lot of there's a lot of wholesome reverence to his writing as well. That like, I don't know. He t- he takes it seriously, even though it is so funny that y- you can't help but like get over the gimmick of it because he's doing it in such a just a just a, just a, such a great way. Um, well, how you know he's taking it seriously is that you could potentially grow tired of the exploration of a certain idea and right when that happens he's got such a like finger on the pulse that uh he'll find some equally ignorable detail that he will make interesting Mm -hmm. and like the frequency with which he does that in a 135 page 135 page book is uh makes all the difference like he he knows what like he's thought about this and he's skilled and he means what he's doing in the project of the book so it's not how did you guys uh how'd you guys read how'd you guys read the footnotes did you like when you saw one did you read the full footnote and then go back to the section or did you just keep reading page by page it's tough when they go to the next page too and you're not done reading (laughs) the top bigger font some of the footnotes in this book are like four pages yeah right yeah and like there's the one about elevator safety (laughs) not even not even that one about elevator safety it's four pages and the actual text it's from 65 to 68 and on every page where the footnote is the actual text is four lines (laughs) Yeah, yeah and everything else is a footnote about elevators or escalators sorry right i think there's yeah. some there's some bit about es- elevators in there where he talks about the uh, behavior he he has when he's on an elevator and how he'll like pretend to be a uh, like a wind up toy and walk into the wall and he talks about how it's great because it's a little moment of privacy and you can see exactly when the door is going to open so you can stop doing whatever crazy thing you're doing I thought that was a great little moment as well. But ultimately, he chooses the... Wholesome um, American Psycho. As, yeah. Yes. That's just such a perfect <laughs> description, dude. Yeah. But he, he, he chooses the experience of the escalator in his own personal thoughts over the elevator because um, there's a linear continuation of 
experience. Right. Right. Like there is Which a I kind forgot of deeper, what it was. The deeper metaphor is like um you know like on the escalator. You you see the changing of perspectives as you move through versus right. like the kind of discrete isolated, um interior. Uh, experience of an escalator ride if you're alone or even with a couple people. Elevator, right? Like the escalator, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and also, I, I had uh, marked this down as like a, a comment that he basically made on footnotes themselves, which just leads me to believe that like, I, I think even he was aware of like the potential pros and cons of doing the footnote right. personally, where he said. Uh, they knew that the uh, outer surface of truth is not smooth, welling and gathering from paragraph to shapely paragraph, but is encrusted with a rough, protective bark of citations, quotation marks, italics, and foreign languages, a whole uh, variorum crust of ibids and comparises and sees that are the shield for the pure flow of argument as it lives for a moment in one mind. They knew the anticipatory pleasure of sensing with peripheral vision as they turn the page, a gray silt of further example and qualification waiting in tiny type at the bottom. It's brilliant. And, and like the fact that that is in a footnote about footnotes, <laughs> yeah. it's like, it's, it's yeah. so perfect. But again, like even in writing that, like it's this, and he, that, that footnote begins with a sort of like academic discussion referencing a book about the history of European morality <laughs> yeah. and like and like it's it, it, it's so it's funny because he's playing like footnotes are generally says these academic things where you do references and blah 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 but by the end of it it's so beautiful and heartfelt you know what I mean it's about it comes back to the tactility of the experience of turning the page and seeing the footnote, yes. you know what I mean? Like it always what your body goes through. Exactly. It, it always comes back to the phenomenology of it. He's playing footsie with you. <laughs> oh my God. That's fucking good. Oh, I get it. it took me, it took me a, a millisecond. Now, I, now, <laughs> now in my Baker free association mind, I'm like footnotesy, goatsy. Go goatsy. Yes. <laughs> I'm wide open to any and all interpretations. That's right. Um, I mean, and I think one of the things is like with those associations that you make and that he makes, he re he talks early on in the book. There's a great section where he talks about um, like the top eight like insights he gained from childhood, and oh, yeah. and the and I'll I'll just read the list. I won't read the the actual thing, but he goes <clears throat> over twenty years. Uh, oh, sorry. I tried to call up some sample memories of shoe tying to determine whether one shoe tended to come untied more often than another. What I found was that I did not retain a single specific engram of tying a shoe or a pair of shoes that dated from any later than when I was four or five years old, the age at which I had first learned the skill. Over 20 years of empirical data were lost forever, a complete blank. But I suppose this is often true of moments of life that are remembered as major advances. The discovery is the crucial thing, not its repeated later applications. As it happened, the first three major advances in my life, and I will list all the advances here, one, shoe tying, two, pulling up on X's, three, steadying hand against sneaker when tying, four, brushing tongue as well as teeth, five, putting on deodorant after I was fully dressed, six, discovering that sweeping was fun, 
Seven, ordering a rubber stamp with my address on it to make bill paying more efficient. Eight, deciding that brain cells ought to die. <laughs> and like, and, well, and what's brilliant that, about that, that too, yeah. is they all, they all come into play later in the book, too. Yes. It goes into more detail about every single one. But I think that, that last one specifically, which is like jarring when you're reading that list, you're like, oh, yeah. I'm deciding that brain cells, one of these things is not like the other, right? And, and he goes through in the next 10 pages or whatever, each one, you know, point by point. But the point of the last one is that he has this view that there are like, uh, like neurologically, like if certain brain cells die, that it's okay because they're making room for more... It's almost like this evolutionary view where it's like the, the brain cells that survive will become stronger when the other ones die and form these more intricate neurological connections to other brain cells. And that that's, that's basically like what the book is doing with memory and experience, right? It's these kind of neural pathways between events and moments and experiences in our life that some drop away, but the ones that stay get stronger and stronger over time. And he tells that explanation through an experience he had where his mom was telling him that, right? That basically you have like veteran brain cells that stick yeah. around. I think there but is you're right a, that, a, oh, go ahead. Oh, no, you can finish your thought. I was going to say, Gabe, you're, you're right about that being jarring. I thought he was going to go into detail about like alcoholism or something later in the book, but it ended up being way more wholesome, of course. I think the one, I guess, meta critique in the book, if I had to get, uh, guess, is though, uh, especially when it comes to like the whole like seventeen year span where my thoughts will be replaced by adult thoughts and they're more valid. Do you think Baker is um, with you know? Do you think Baker through the character is? I mean, the character's taking that notion seriously. Do you think Baker takes that notion seriously, or do you think that's, like, him joking in the fact that of the delusion of that idea? Which is my opinion of that idea. You know what I mean? Which, which, which idea specifically? The sort of, like, brain cell that, thing? No, that you, like, you know, that, like, the brain cell thing, I think, ties into, like, the childhood memory thing, where he's, like, suspicious of nostalgia, which is fine, but then he's like, that nostalgia will be defeated when right. I uh, have memories that are the majority comprised of things I was thinking about when I was 24 as opposed to 8 or 5. You know what I mean? Like, Yeah, I, I don't know. I think it's complicated. I think that, you know, Baker... Certainly, I don't think Baker is like... <laughs> subscribes to the like 17-year breakpoint theory or anything like that. You know, but, <laughs> but I do wonder about whether or not he would endorse the view that, you know, as we get older, I mean, I do think he may endorse some variant of the, like, veteran brain cell, veteran memory theory in the mm -hmm. sense that, like, I, and, and I, you know, it's, it's hard to even talk about because it's like, you don't remember what you don't remember. But, like, yeah. I can imagine that, like, when I was, 15 there were childhood memories that were very influential to me then that I no longer remember and mm. similarly about when I'm 60 there will be memories of now or like that I that I have of being 15 that I won't remember you know what I mean 
And but there will be some that stick around. I don't know if that is like I don't I don't think that means like defeating nostalgia. I just think it's about the way nostalgia evolves, right? Like the 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 things we're nostalgic for now, we're always going to have nostalgia, right? We're always going to be nostalgic. We're yeah, always right. going to be it's not something to conquer. Exactly. But the things we're nostalgic about evolve and sort of shift and, and rejigger and reconnect in our in our brains and in our, you know, hearts or whatever, if you want to get cringe about it, over yes, over time. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mine mine connecting my gemstone, which I sleep with at night on my chest. Oh yeah? Yeah. No, I'm kidding. But I think Was you're that right, a reference I think... that I didn't get? It was a reference to people that sleep with gemstones on their chest. Oh, just like stone crystal people? Yeah. Yeah. If there are any uh, crystals yeah. podcasts that want to come out on, on the show. Any new age podcasts yeah, uh, yeah. whatsoever. Well, you're talking about like the known unknowns and the known knowns and the unknown unknowns. Right, the, right. The, the famous Dick Cheney line. Or Rumsfeld. Oh, Rumsfeld. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Come on, Gabe. Oh, God. Bully Gabe. Bully <laughs> Gabe now. Yeah. It's the Bully Gabe episode. Stupid idiot. I also, I, I think I said, I think earlier Got I said him. that Tacitus was Greek. He was Roman. So I just want to get that on the Wow, dude. I'm sorry. Why do you, does anyone listen to I'm just going to, I'm just going to leave. And uh, yeah, if you don't yeah, see Paul me and again, you know why. That, by the way. Paul and I also <laughs> caught that for the record and we just didn't say anything. Yeah, we did. We caught it. Fine. <laughs> what, did you guys talk about it when I went to the bathroom or something? Yeah, we were like, yeah, we were like can that you believe that he actually, yeah. Damn. Yeah. Well, I, 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 it was bugging me, and I, I wanted to correct the record. Hey, Gabe, big oof. Touch grass, bro. Big oop. Yeah, big oop. oop, oop. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things I was thinking about uh, was also, or, or the idea that I didn't get to say that I just want to say was one of the intrusive thoughts that I find the most pleasant at all times, and it's been the case for a cup like, couple decades even um is uh is exactly what this book kind of reminded me of which is um expanding small details into larger things uh and and a lot of the time that leads to a a sense of like the materials that comprise the details i'm looking at because they're usually like things in the world but it's like me shrinking myself down uh one of my favorite things to do is think about me uh very small honey i shrunk the kids one of my favorite movies uh, as a tiny, a tiny little bug-sized person and in whatever environment I'm in. Man. So, like, no matter where I am, I'll imagine that I'm uh, the size of, like, a tiny, teeny little small ant, not even a carpenter ant, but a smaller one. Uh, and what that would be like to just be existing like that in the any environment I'm in. And, like, that'll engross my uh, attention. Like, it, it's, huh. it's worked for, for decades. Wow. And it's super fun. Thanks for sharing. I hope you. I hope anyone listening, and I hope you both uh, uh, might find it useful. If there are any, um, I'll use that ant-sized person podcasts out there, <laughs> please <laughs> hit us up. Uh, well, wh- okay. What what is it in your mind, Matt? What is it useful for? Like, what is the? If you're bored, if oh, you're okay. like, I'm in a oh, fucking. Okay. In like such a stupid, boring location, <laughs> or like an airport or whatever, or like you're just sitting somewhere. Yeah, and then you go like, "What if I was small as shit?" And suddenly, <laughs> it's, like a... it's it is genuinely like. And then, what would I be doing? Like, how would I be trying to signal that I'm small? Maybe I don't want to be. You know, stuff like this just starts to like 
crop up the instant you start to go like, uh, I'm not the same size as I was. But I think like indirectly, I'm describing expanding the world or like uh, you right. know that's kind of what is happening on a, in a way, right? Like well, because as like you get smaller, doing. the world gets bigger, right? Yeah, exactly right. So it's like. Um, Science. These things, these things that I would uh, ignore. <laughs> Basically, the idea is things that I would ignore become significant, and I think that's, that's what he's describing. I think I'm going to use that because I like. I really have a huge problem waiting in lines. I hate it. Right. Uh, in Florida, I had to wait in line for like an hour and ten minutes for the rental car, and I was going insane. I love lines. I just my phone was dead. I was just I hate lines, and that would that would have been useful. Yeah. Thank you, Matt. It's, Thank it's you not for a cure all, but I think it's helpful, you know? You're like, what if I was so small that I could balance on the um you know, you're waiting in the in a, uh, a queue of some kind <laughs> and they have those uh <laughs> those divider strips attached to yeah, the Yeah, that's pylons. where I, I was in yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like what if I was balanced what if I was so small that I could balance on the little area of the of the cloth strip that they usually connect between the pylons? sounds fun yeah what i was thinking was miles to me what what i was thinking (laughs) was i hope someone puts me in a uh cryogenic sleep chamber for the next hour because i hate this so much i just want to be frozen wake me up when i get to the end of the line (laughs) wake me up inside yeah that's right shout out shout out to evanescence yeah if there's any evanescence podcast (laughs) (laughs) but i mean i do think matt it's interesting because like the book is you know, he talks about micro history, and I think in general the book is concerned with the micro, right? It's 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 about the smallest, most granular kind of detail and experience. But precisely what you were saying, the way in which the the, the further down you drill, the smaller your scale gets, the bigger everything else gets. Mm-hmm. There's a like um, the quantum realm in Ant Man, dude. Literally, exactly <laughs> that. Not yeah, perfect example. Like not even not not even ironically, <laughs> that's exactly it. Because I was thinking yeah. about a, a, an Alan Moore quote, uh, where he was like, you know, um, if your conception, if like you map, uh, uh, if your map is broad enough, I mean, I don't know if this fully applies, but like. And this is a brutalization, but, uh, you know, uh, if your map is accurate enough at like a macro scale, no matter how far you drill down, like your details will always comport with the overall picture and always be interesting and relevant to the overall picture. You know what I mean? I don't know if that's quite what Baker's doing, but, you know, it was another thing I thought of reading the book. I like that. Yeah, because because I think, right, like, he does have, and it's funny because it, it, in, in the footnotes and, like, throughout the text, it does oscillate, right, between the, like, hyper-micro and bigger picture because a lot of the footnotes about sort of, like, the tech, like technological advance, the book is also, like, very about technology in a weird way, yeah. like, and, yeah. and American sort of, you know, industrial development and all of that. And all of that is very big picture, right? He talks about like sort of like big picture trends in design of consumer products and the invention of new kind of, um, uh, you know, ways of designing things and so on and so forth. And that's all very big picture and very like meta historical, but it's always in connection 
there's this he draws these lines to the very very micro scale experiences in one one guy's life and uh i, I was like I, I wrote a little note on 127 because you know yeah like the, the meta historical micro historical um and at one point i just was like he's describing like metadata word searches now you know where he's just like he's trying to he's describing uh him trying to take account of all of the thoughts he had and their frequency. And he's describing what like the Google most searched for thing ends up being contemporarily. You know what I mean? Like you just type in like a couple words and then you see like wh- however many fucking billion people looked up something mm-hmm. and like how that relates to uh, a larger understanding of people in general. Uh, and that, that discussion on 127 leads right to his, his own personal list, which is so funny, of his most frequent thoughts for the year. We should Someone read it should, together. Paul, just read it. Paul, just read the list. I feel. I'll, I feel I'll like read. we. Sh- I feel like we should read the the last line of one twenty six onto one twenty seven too, because that is Google. Like like you said, Matt. Like he's just describing that yes. phenomenon on sort of Google search, right? Like I mean, I guess I'll just read the sentence and then you can read the list, Paul. Like. If if we could assign a periodicity number in this way to every recurrent thought a person had, what would we know? We would know the relative frequency of his thoughts over time, something that might prove to be more revealing than any statement of beliefs he might offer, or even than a frozen section of available potential (laughs) thoughts, if that were possible, at any one time in particular. Yeah. Like, that's, yeah, you're exactly right. Like, that's Google, that's metadata, that's that's what's happening, like, right now. But still, even right now, what he's trying to get at is an individual's like Google search data, which is, you know, I think kind of the point of the microcosm of this of this book is like, how close can you get when you are, you know, focusing and focusing and focusing? How close can you get to any real Mm -hmm. data driven truth? Um, And I think at a certain point things do break up, break apart and you can't get certain information. I think that actually comes into fruition uh, after this list, but I'll read the first page cause it's hilarious. So <laughs> yeah, the, 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 uh, the list is broken into subject of thought and number of times th- uh, thought occurred per year in descending order. Number one, L, which is his girlfriend, 580 family, 400 brushing tongue, 150 earplugs, 100, Bill paying fifty two, Panasonic three way three wheeled vacuum cleaner greatness of forty five, <laughs> sunlight makes you cheerful forty, traffic frustration thirty eight, Penguin books all thirty five, <laughs> job should I quit thirty four, <laughs> friends don't have any thirty three, <laughs> <laughs> marriage a possibility thirty two, vending machines thirty one, straws don't. Uh, on Sheathwell, 28. Uh, Shine on Moving Objects, 25. McCart- McCartney, more talented than Lennon, 23. <laughs> Friends smarter, more capable than I am, 19. Paper towel dispensers, 19. What oft was thought, but ner, etc. 18. People are very dissimilar, 16. Trees, beauty of, 15. Sidewalks, 15. Friends are unworthy of me. (laughs) (laughs) Identical twins separated at birth. Studies of traits. 14. (laughs) Yo, just keep it. Keep it going. Keep going, going, dude. Just do the whole thing. Just do the fucking list. 
Intelligence going fast, 14. Wheelchair rams, they're insane danger, 14. <laughs> <laughs> Urge to kill, 13. <laughs> Escalator invention, 12. People are very similar, 12. <laughs> Not in my backyard, in quotes, 11. Straws float now, 10. <laughs> DJ. <laughs> DJ, would I be happy as one? Nine. <laughs> if you can't get out of it, get into it, nine. <laughs> Pen, felt tip, nine. Ga- gasoline, nice smell of, eight. <laughs> Pen, ballpoint, eight. Stereo systems, eight. Fear of getting mugged again, seven. Staplers, seven. Roaches check in, but they don't check out, six. <laughs> Dinner roll, image of, six. <laughs> Shoes, six. Bags, five. <laughs> Earl butts, four. Sweeping, brooms, four. Whistling, yodel trick, four. <laughs> you can taste it with your eyes, four. Dry cleaning fluid, smell of, three. Ziploc tops, two. Popcorn, one. Birds regurg- regurgitate food and feed young with it, point zero five. <laughs> Emmanuel Kant. Point zero five or point five. <laughs> uh, and the that, but and the sentence that immediately follows qualifies all of that with just but compiling the list as I saw as soon as I began sketchily to do so in my head was not the enlightening process of abstraction I had expected it to be. Thoughts were too fluid, too difficult to name, and once named to classify, for my estimate of their relative frequency to mean very much. Yes, exactly. Which is important. And and th- no, that's like one of the most important parts because it it's if we're doing the sort of like Google like metadata critique, he's already articulating that critique in 1986. Yes. Right? That like yeah, okay. This person and I think that's that's part of the point of this book is that yeah, I thought about, you know, birds regurgitating their food to feed their young six times last year, you know, or whatever. Like I, I, so I Googled it like six times, but why did I Google it? Like what meaning did that thought have to me? Right. Like, and what, and what connections does that thought have to other experiences that I have? Like how are, how is it interlinked with the rest of my inner life? You know what I mean? It's, it doesn't matter in and of itself. Yeah. It sells within cells. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's a Blade Runner reference, right? Blade Runner. Yes, sir. Yes. Uh, and also a, a Nabokov reference of some kind, I think. I think Pale Fire. Um, Which is also listed in the New York Times blurb at the beginning as a gimmick book. This gimmick thing, it just sort of <laughs> irks me a little bit. I mean, it's yeah. such a, like, fucking, I don't know, like, dismissive well, I mean, word. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's a very uh, loaded They're term. talking about an idea that the author's exploring, for exactly. fuck's sake. Yeah, you know exactly. what I mean? But anyway. It sounds like a bunch of booktubers wrote these reviews. <laughs> like, yeah. I think these were all written by <laughs> Clifford Lee Sargent. <laughs> he would have hated yeah. this book, actually. There's no blood. There's, not a, there's not a wizard. It's so bloodless. There's only bloody diarrhea. That's it. <laughs> There's not a wizard guiding a uh, teenage couple through a, you know, uh, an enchanted cave or whatever the fuck people read. This, this, this <laughs> book Which, is, that sounds sick, to be honest, but you, you know, I see your point. This book I was is, trying to uh, reference fantasy tropes that were yeah. on the list. It's not yeah. about sex or death. Well, sort of death. I, I suppose. Soft. Soft death. Soft death, yeah. Memory Aging, death. I think, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I think significantly, like, this narrator is, uh, well, it's just context clues that allow you to figure this out, but he's young. Yes. You know, I, I don't know what you take from that, and also Baker was young when he wrote it, so, but he seems like the kind of person that was certainly aware, you know, like, not, not, not outside of, like, the kind of, like, what you would consider the, like, postmodern kind of Wallace-style pitfalls of self-consciousness to the point of... Uh, detriment but I, I yeah i would kind of agree that baker seems to have um navigated that much <laughs> i mean through his continued existence on this earth uh more <laughs> successfully <laughs> to yeah. be honest you know yeah it, uh, yeah I, I mean i do and like I, my my spicy take again i've not and maybe we'll do it on the show one time uh someday we can read infinite jest i've not read the whole thing i know you have matt but like uh, the conceit of Wallace's approach, to me, Baker just did the whole thing better in 135 pages than anything Wallace ever even attempted. I know that's spicy. Uh, it's spicy. I haven't read any Wallace, so I can't comment. I would just say that Baker's, um, and again, like he's got many other books written. But through this one alone, I would say it's it's not quite the same preoccupations. Well, it's not the same preoccupation. Well, I mean, I don't know. It's it's. What do you mean? What's what? What are the key differences as you see it? Um. I mean, this is just uh, once again, you know, this is like such a limited example for Baker's overall thoughts on the subject. Oeuvre. I mean. His oeuvre, his egg, uh, <laughs> his oof. Um, oop. Oop. His oop. You know, uh, potentially reading more would would prove what we're what you know that claim to be true. But um, I don't know. I think just the scope is 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 obviously it's it's deceptively limited, but incorporating most experience. Uh, but, uh, like, I don't know. I think Wallace has some interesting claims to make about, um, more about, like, media and, uh, like, the, the, the self-consciousness, like, how to end it, like, how to, how to, uh, cope with it, which I don't think this book, uh, gives a satisfying answer to while addressing it a little bit. It's it like, also, you kind I of mean, have this, like, zen, hyper, like... I'm super present and aware and like capable of um, fixating and like meditating on these things, but I, I would not call this book a kind of um, answer. And I think that's the more existential question that like Wallace is asking himself through his life is like how to not be, uh, how to do it and how to not feel fraudulent or how to like um, not have this become just corrosive or, or whatever. You know what I mean? But I guess, doesn't that get back to the point that we were making earlier about like Baker's kind of like um, embrace of pessimism in a way about like never defeating nostalgia and never defeating like I guess the 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 inauthenticity of mm -hmm. modern life right like Baker just embraces it like this is just what we do. This is just the type of fucking critters that we are. 
And Wallace wants to fight that. He wants to find a way to be, you know, real or authentic or true. And Baker, just from the jump, is just like, it's not possible. It's not possible. possible. It's not possible. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Baker really doesn't denounce it. He doesn't ever really fight it or really he doesn't even seem to be like that critical of it right like, i think as a as a reader you're reading it and you're you're kind of like at least i was thinking that these trains of thought seem to be a little like if, if i was having them they would be a little debilitating for me to have this kind of going through my head all the time but then you think well i kind of have thoughts of my own that are similar to this and whatever i think there's um, a um I think there's a progressive notion still and a bit of a, uh, you know, like in the book, you know, like things are improving and um, the hopefulness or like the lack of um, despair comes from still the kind of faith in um, science and technology and human innovation to account for those things and improve upon them. In this book? In this book. I I don't know. I feel like... At least for the character, I don't know for Baker, this is the qualification, but for Howie, I feel like that is his reality in the book, is that like he's nervous, he's he's at the edges of despair at the very end with the shoelace thing. Right, right. And it, it, he needs the, the Polish inventor to have, to claim, you know, undevoted attention to uh, a, a very banal, you know, um, kind of... Um, synecdochic right or synecdoche kind of thing uh to make him uh not depressed a little bit by the end excuse me i mean he's not really like depressed by i I would say he's like irritated and he wants to like solve the mystery but yeah sure yeah you're probably yeah more like alarmed or irritated i guess i would i guess though like my read on his, his the polish scientist thing with the shoelaces is like it's not that he is comforted by like the advances of modern science he's comforted by the fact that someone like another human person cared about this topic you know what i mean it's the human connection it's not like some big claim about progress or technology or anything i don't think like i I read that as like him being comforted by the fact that like another subject another person with an inner life like gave like gave enough of a shit about this topic to like devote his life to it. Yeah, that could be yeah. true. And I, that's I'm and that's all we have, right? Like that's I think that's part of Baker's point is like those kind of random free associative connections is what like human meaning comes down to. But hmm, I don't know. It's just like it's just that there's like this also eighties like heavy product kind of emphasis as the subject of the meditation and how that is the environment in which this person is applying that perspective that is still to me creating a small bit of dissonance where I'm like, I don't, you know, like the horizon of this person's world is still like, uh, the effect of milk carton, you know, spigot technology. And, and I don't know. Let me, uh, let me read, uh, this paragraph on page 54 that kind of I highlighted because I thought it was one moment of like the narrator kind of being um, a little introspective in the moment. 
It's like yeah. a, it's the middle paragraph. Gabe also dog-eared it. Nice. Oh yeah. Do you want to read it? No, oh, no, yeah, no. Okay. Go ahead. And this is when I realized abruptly that as of that minute, impossible to say exactly which minute, I had finished with whatever large-scale growth I was going to have as a human being, and that I was now permanently arrested at an intermediate stage of personal development. I did not move or flinch or make any outward sign. Actually, once the first shock of raw surprise had passed, the feeling was not unpleasant. I was set. I was the sort of person who said actually too much. I was the sort of person who stood in the subway car and thought about buttering toast, buttering raisin toast even. When the high crisp scrape of the butter knife is muted by occasional contact with the soft heat blimp forms of the raisins. And when, and when if you cut across a raisin, it will sometimes fall right out, still intact through though dented as you lift the slice. <coughs> I was the sort of person whose biggest discoveries were likely to be tricks to applying toiletries while fully dressed. I was a man, but I was not nearly, nearly the magnitude of man I had hoped I might be. That's the mezzanine, dude. It, it's it, That's the mezzanine. It's this... The he's, intermediate. He's, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yes. But yeah, I, fo- I found that passage to be like kind of unique because he was being like i'm this type of person i'm thinking this way i'm i feel different than other people wholesome american psycho dude say it again very yeah. true yeah i um i don't know if that changes my feel that there was uh the, the, those uh acknowledgement of limits removes the kind of dissonance very slight though not not you know again not despairing or anything but just more like it's one perspective it's one perspective it's capacious and it's more capacious than you would you could possibly think um but it's still one do you think baker won though because he's he's alive and he's posting butterflies on his instagram yes a hundred percent i mean uh, i guess i guess the other thing that i'll say about the sort of like general outlook on technology and all that sort of stuff here is that like the Howie is for all intents and purposes like a Luddite like all, all of the technological advances that he talks about are ones that he basically dislikes for various reasons there's a few that he likes right he likes the escalators and so on and so forth but he the hand washers the the, the staplers or the hand dryers, like the, the plastic say. bags, the plastic the bags, loops. the straws, the shift from milk delivery to the cartons. Although he does admire the fact that you can smell if milk is bad in a carton easier than you can if it's in a glass bottle. Um, so I don't know. I guess I guess I would just say like I, I don't know. I don't want it to come. I, I I would just reject the view that it's some sort of like Fukuyama esque like progress of technology. Is, is good simpliciter kind of position. No, I just, I, I, I just, mm, I don't know. I have a suspicion that maybe that's Baker's um, optimistic whenever, you know, at his most optimistic, that is his position. But that's a, that's me too. You know, like that's like my, what I, what I am bringing to it. Well, yeah, I kind but, of, I was kind of thinking similar things like I I was I I had some slight critical vibes from Baker as well just like critical of you know 
nostalgia influencing the way how he is? And is this the type of person that someone should be? And the passage I just read mm-hmm. outlining right. his self-consciousness about who he should be or could be, I think is a good example of that. Like, There's definitely insecurity a, there. Yeah. And I think he's asking the question, like, you know, my upbringing, my thoughts, my, my nostalgic memories influence who I am right now. Um, and is that okay? Even though I feel okay, is the person I am the person I should be? But I, I guess I, I guess I think that that kind of like, you know, that's why my interpretation of the shoelace scientist guy is more is more along the lines of like him finding this information out, and of course, like the way he expresses it, maybe the only way he knows how to express it is in this very sort of clinic clinical academic style but it was it's like a validation of the way of that the person that i am is actually okay because somebody else is like this too you know what i mean that's kind of how i read it yeah i think the book is is um is is uh trying to achieve that kind of sentiment you know uh i i would kind of agree with you that like it's more of a a human connection like Thank God I'm communing with another mind like mine and I feel less alone. Right. You know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's basically like. But the irony of it is that like, I think we all had the experience reading the book that we all felt connected to the guy. Yes. 100%. Right? 100%. It was, yeah. it, it was, it was legit hashtag relatable. <laughs> I heard the phrase, uh, you know, because I also can't shit. Uh, if someone else is near me in, the, in an office. <laughs> oh, that was a great, that that was was so a great funny. segment. And someone just said, uh, you need to go from poop shy to poop fly. <laughs> <laughs> in the stall? Of, yeah, and I just let it rip, and I just think about that. Oh, that's go I'm poop, I'm a, Yeah, like, I'm actually poop fly. I'm actually going to go off right now. That's <laughs> king shit. I think what I'm going to do shit. is I'm going to pretend that I'm really, really, really small, and I'm pooping off the side of a <laughs> giant toilet bowl. <laughs> Just dropping it little works, ant poops. Yeah. That's, that's great. Well. Well. Uh, oop. 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 Oh God. <laughs> we were. That was good. That's how. That's that's what I was going for. Some da, dissonance. Da, 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 da. Yeah, dissonance. You're right. Um, so welcome everybody. <laughs> to our fan favorite segment of the show, where what do we call it? Oh, nice. Uh, I, we just read another. We just book. did read another book. We just yeah, read another so book. We're impervious to critique. <laughs> where we talk about Harry Potter. You and literally can't be mad that yeah. we're doing this. We just talked about a book about. One minute up an elevator for almost two hours. Yeah. So, so why don't you why don't shut you up and out? let us talk about Harry Potter, loser? Shut up, <laughs> you elitist <laughs> nerd. Um, so this is where we take the characters from the book we just read and put them into their Harry Potter houses. This is going to be a weird one because there's one, one character. There's one character really. There's he, there's others that are mentioned, but we don't know anything about them. It's yeah. it's all through one man's <laughs> brain. So. so 
There it is. Howie, dude. What what house is Howie? How we how we classify him. <laughs> <laughs> how we got classify him. <laughs> oh shit. Dude, I, I think don't I might know. I think Raven I might Claw. put my foot down and not answer this one. Whoa. What? <laughs> I just have not a fucking option. Dude, hold on. No, Let no, me no, check no. the official Spinecracker's rule book. Yeah. Why don't you blow the uh, dust off of the ancient tome? I feel like Howie just isn't in the Harry Potter world at all. Untrue. He's not even. Everyone's. Damn, dude. What is this? All right, make your case. Make your case, yes. Paul. Defend yourself. That's a, that's a, that's a hot take. I don't, I don't really have a case. I just don't want it because he's a squib. He's a squib. <laughs> okay, we have classified people as squibs before. Sure. I um, think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say he's a squib. Okay, why? I just feel like he'd have no magical abilities. <laughs> <laughs> but he doesn't, you don't think he exhibits any of the characteristics of any of the houses? I will say that I, even though we get insights into his life and his memory and how he thinks i feel like i just didn't get enough information about you know even even the interactions he has with other people i feel like it didn't give me enough information either about who he actually is um or not who he actually is but like a clearer definition of his persona i just never really got that harry potter section side where i could be like oh yeah, he'd fit into this house. I just, I don't feel like I just got enough inf- information. The whole book is in his own head and his memory. What do you mean you didn't get enough information? Yeah, it's only his perspective for 135 pages. Dog. I'll go last. Okay. <laughs> Dib's not first. <laughs> wizards are, can be, are there autistic wizards? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um yeah, I mean again, like the 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 thing, right, with the house classifications is that they're stereotypes. So you 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 know, for you know, you then complicate them after the fact. So I'm saying he's a Ravenclaw cuz he's I think essentially a Aristotelian classifier, taxonomist, analytic person uh whose whole coping approach i think a little bit to life is classifying and arranging data about himself in ways that he can then sort of make sense of even though he also seems to have you know a more robust like he he reads he reads uh marcus aurelius and he's he's got literary pretensions and he's you know but Ultimately, yeah, he's a he's a taxonomist and a classifier and an analytic brain. So I'm saying Ravenclaw. I yeah I uh, I agree. I you basically said everything I was gonna say. I think I, he's I think I, he's definitely a Ravenclaw. All right, I agree. <laughs> I just looked up the traits of Ravenclaw and yeah, like wit, learning, wisdom, planning acceptance. ahead. Yeah, sounds about right. Still, I still I mean. I still think he'd be a squib, <laughs> if, but if he had magical abilities, he would be a Ravenclaw. Well, you could yeah, say squib. Yeah. I think squib's acceptable. No, so squib is. We've we established should, that. I think squib is acceptable. Can, yeah, you can say squib, and we'll just say that's what you said. I'm gonna say squib. Nice. All right. All right. 
So that just leaves one job to do, boys, which is score this one up, rack it up. Dib's yeah. not first. All right, fine. Matt can't go first because it's his pick. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so I'll go first. Uh, I love this book. I liked it a lot. I think it's... I, I was shocked that I had never heard of it before because I feel like this is a book that people should read and talk about. And it's... it's and it's also, the, like like I said earlier, it's like one of the funniest fucking books I've ever read in my life. Like, <laughs> I, I, I don't know if we captured that enough in this episode, but it is hilarious. Yeah. Um, it, you know, obviously it's like in a dry kind of like, you know, sort of way, dry academic way, but it's very funny. Um, so, yeah, I loved it. Read it. Uh, it's a four point. Two eight for me. Right on. Nice. Yeah, I also really love this book. It was, uh, I thought it was so refreshing and gr- just like excellent to read this after Dalloway and Greg Gatsby. Yes. It was just such like a, it made the book funnier to me because we were reading these like, you know, very highly praised classic books the last couple of weeks. And to go to just a totally different page and read something that was just like very different than what I've read and very funny um, was just, it was awesome. I love the reading experience. Um, I think Baker rules. I think I'm going to give it a four point four five. Whoa. I really like this book. Huge ups from Paul. I think I, I I I rated the Great Gatsby like four point two something. I like this more as a, as a reading experience. I'm looking at it right now. Fine, I had to get, yeah. I had to go higher. So okay. I'm, yeah, never mind. I'll leave it. I'll leave it like that. Four point four five. Yeah, I, I'm gonna go four even. Um, you know, I had my doubts at the beginning of the book, but uh, we've read it. We've read now several books that like do so much with so little and i don't think i've like previously really like appreciated um that feat in writing (laughs) (laughs) i mean this book does something that still feels like pretty fucking contemporary and it is um it is placed pretty i mean i think it'll carry over into me being meaningful like for a long time um in ways that like Dalloway and Gatsby have like borne themselves out to prove to be true. Uh, but yeah, I just wonder, I, I, the, the, there's such a, um, the, uh, the phenomenological experiences of people in the future. I got no fucking clue. Yeah. I hope, I hope that this, rings true to you know folks two generations out for me even and i think it will i don't think you can escape the kind of thing baker's really talking about so um yeah for for even just delightful funny uh would uh, recommend read it i'm gonna read other books by baker too i would love to i looked up he's got mad books too he's got like many yeah yeah he wrote, I think, like the last two or three books he wrote were like similar writing style, but about like raunchy sex. Yeah, including erotica. He's got like a erotica trilogy that he kind of did. That yeah. sounds like a Patreon episode. 
Yeah. Yeah. Hello. Formata, Vox, House of Holes, which is literally peeping Tom shit. Yeah, like all kinds of stuff. That that sounds cool. like uh, something we should do for Patreon, which, by the way, listeners. Yes. If you've made it this far in a two-hour episode about a 135-page book about riding an escalator for one minute, <laughs> you might like us enough to subscribe to our Patreon. Uh, we post stuff there. We do you know bookshelf tours and random videos and videos of us playing Batman. So mm. uh, go check it out. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. Drop a like. Drop a comment. Uh, follow us on Instagram and Twitter. It's you can just find us Spinecrackers. Whoever can first get to a mezzanine, we have to just take a video of. That. Oh, we need to. We definitely need yeah. to do some. Pay, yeah. Yes. Um. Yeah. And if we read his other, if we read his sex novels on Patreon, that's going on Patreon. Be, we will be naked. <laughs> Topless, at least. Topless. Yeah. <laughs> It'll be a video podcast. Yes, and nips. That'll out. be a switcheroo because I'm usually bottomless on on the normal podcasts. True, yeah. that's facts. You heard of dicks out for Harambe? This will be uh, dicks out for tits Baker. Out. <laughs> Man, tits out for Baker. Nips out for Baker. Yeah. <laughs> Nips for uh, Nicholson. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. That is it. Nailed it. That's it. <laughs> so thank you so much, guys, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.